Hello, it's Alyssa Milano, and I can't wait for you to read my new book, Sorry Not Sorry. It's a collection of essays where I share my unapologetic thoughts on life, culture, activism, and motherhood. You'll learn some things about me that I know you've never heard before and share in my story as an activist. This book is such a big part of my heart, and so are you, and thank you for that. Sorry Not Sorry is available now everywhere books are sold. Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. My guest this week is Gabby Dunn. Gabby is a New York Times bestselling author, comedian, and LGBTQ advocate living in Los Angeles. They are the host and creator of the podcast Bad With Money with Gabby Dunn. Their new piece, Stimulus Wreck, Rebuilding After a Financial Disaster, is now available on Scribd. The impact of the COVID-19 shutdown has led to some of the worst unemployment numbers in this country's history. People who were laid off were more likely to be female, younger, working in less secure, lower paying jobs. In other words, those who could least afford it. Financial literacy can help alleviate many money problems, yet only a handful of states require high school students to take a personal finance class. We never talked about it. We never, like, discussed how I was going to pay for school. Hi, I'm Gabby Dunn, author of the Scribd original Stimulus Rec and host of the podcast Bad With Money. And I'm passionate about making financial literacy more accessible to all. Sorry, not sorry. Gabby, thank you so much for being here. So I think, like many people, when COVID hit, you weren't quite financially prepared for a crisis like that. Tell us about your financial crisis and how you got there. Sure. So I started doing my podcast, Bad With Money, in 2016. And it was primarily because I had done a lot of work in the like LGBTQ and like dating space. But I hadn't really talked about and people would always say, oh, that's so brave. That's so brave. And I was like, it's not brave, actually, because I have this big secret. And my big secret is that I'm in a lot of debt and I cry about money probably 90 percent of the time that I'm crying. And then when I started working at BuzzFeed and I started getting more popular on the Internet, but I was realizing that internet popularity does not equal money, actually. So I was like getting all of these followers, but the followers weren't equaling money. But because people didn't really know that, they would say, oh, if I got a brand deal or something, they would say, oh, they're rich now. Oh, I see. And meanwhile, in my actual life, I was like struggling. I didn't know anything about my student loans. I didn't know anything about I had medical debt from like dental care, didn't know anything about it, would just have all this credit card debt and not even look at it. I had trouble opening my mail. I like couldn't opening mail would give me anxiety. So then I got approached to do a podcast. And I think the people that approached me thought I would do some sort of LGBTQ sex and dating show. And I was like, actually, the thing that makes me nauseous every day is my money situation. And I would love to, I even love to, but I was like, 
I think it would be interesting to talk about that publicly. And so I started the show basically not knowing anything. And I would call my bank on the air. I would call my student loan office on the air. I I talked to my parents and I would give them a hard time about how they didn't teach us anything about money. And they were very game to be on the show and be caught in their lies to a lot of the time. Like my mom was like, I remember one episode, she was like, you don't have to pay your student loans on time. It doesn't matter. And then I would call the student loan people and be like, my mom says this. Is that true? And they'd be like, it's absolutely not true. So I had done all this work. And I think what I realized is that for the average person who can't make financial education into a project or a job, I was not sure how they were finding this out. How do you have time? If you have two kids, if you have two jobs, if you have medical expenses, if you take care of your parents, anything, how do you even find a second to parse through or go through everything? It's not realistic for people. And they don't prepare. Nobody prepares us. None. Zero. You don't learn how to fill out a check. You don't learn what taxes are. You don't learn anything about Even like um, women that I've interviewed who got degrees in economics or corporate finance, I was like, surely as part of that degree, they teach you personal finance. And most of these women were like, not at all. Even at the Ivy League places, it was like, and they were saying it was this very embarrassing thing where you go into working at like a hedge fund or something and you understand the stock market, but you don't understand how to pay your own taxes. You don't understand anything about your own personal situation because you're just trained to sort of work for these corporations. So I was like, that's wild. Nobody knows anything. Even if you major in economics, you probably don't. And then, so I had all this like stuff that I had done and I was like, I'm good to go. Yeah, I'm not like totally perfect, but like, at least I have a a grasp on things, whatever. And then my book, Bad With Money came out in 2019. And I was like, yeah, I've learned a lot. And then, (laughs) and then COVID happened. And I was like, oh, there is no preparation for you can prepare for all sorts of personal disasters. Maybe you get life insurance, pet insurance. I don't know. But just the idea of a global pandemic did not, I don't think, enter anyone's mind. It was completely unprecedented. People, friends of mine who work in physical therapy or who were housekeepers or stuff. I mean, you're not allowed in people's homes. You're not allowed to touch people. You're not allowed. It just like decimated everything. And like, in some ways it was good because it did change a lot of the ways that people think about work and about money. And it created a bit more accessibility, but I was like, Oh, I thought that I was in a good spot. And then I was not at all. My income that I had planned for was slashed, I think literally in half. And I was like, uh, yeah. If you look at the entertainment industry, that's a job you can't do over the internet. Like you have to be on a set. So you think about the crew members, you think about people that basically did not work for two and a half years. And I'm also going to add, it doesn't matter what your socioeconomic status is. I had millions of dollars taken from me because I did not understand what I was doing. And not only that, It became just too easy to let someone else do it and not keep track of it. And once they know, that's when they take advantage. And so I remember opening a letter and it was a lien on my house. Oh, shit. And I was like, what the fuck is this? (laughs) What the fuck is this? What was it? There was a lien on my house. I know, but how did that happen? Someone was not paying my bills. Oh, shit. That is the thing that happens in entertainment all the time. Alanis Morissette arrived at federal court in downtown L.A. Wednesday to tell a judge how her former business manager, Jonathan Schwartz, harmed her and her future. He apologized directly to Ms. Morissette 
for the deceit and the harm that he caused her. A judge then handed down six years in federal prison and ordered Schwartz to pay more than eight and a half million dollars in restitution. Well, you hear about it and you think, like, how is it possible that so-and-so had millions of dollars stolen from them? Like, how is that even a possibility? And I really believe it is because we have no, and when I say we, I mean everyone, we have no understanding, we have no foundation of what it means to take care of personal finances. And it is just too easy to trust people to do it. But you mentioned your book, Bad With Money. What does it mean to be good with money? So this is a thing that I've uncovered over time, which is that bad with money, I think people have the wrong idea and they think that it means somebody who's in poverty, somebody who's low income, somebody who's broke. And in actuality, it really has more to do with awareness. This is such an unfair stigma put on low income people because you ask them and they know where every dollar went. They know where to get the access to benefits. They know how much they have left. They know everything. There's this really amazing book called Uneasy Street by Rachel Sherman, and it's about very wealthy people in New York. And they will say things like, how did we spend $60,000 this month? And like, they don't know, or they don't want to know because they just never learned, but then they never had to. And like you were saying, I think there's a whole cottage industry of financial quote unquote experts who are like, I'm a financial manager, I'm a financial planner, I'll do your stock market, I'll do your taxes, I'll do your mortgage. And so you go, great, I don't want to have to do this. And then you, if someone says to you, what's your P&L for the year? You have no idea. You don't know. You don't know where it went. You don't know who you paid for what. A lot of times the people that are very wealthy are the ones who don't know anything about where their money is or what it's doing or how much they have or how much is left. And it's so unfair to put that label on just people who we perceive as not having any money because oftentimes those people have their priorities straight. They know where, what has to be paid first. I see a lot of people being very frugal with like, here's what I bought at the grocery store. And I made sure that it was all stuff that would be used versus like a rich person who's, oh, there's like dead lettuce in my fridge for months at a time. I think it's just really has to do with awareness. And I think we throw I think if you're good with money, you're someone who knows what's going on with you. You open your mail, you ask questions. We're even afraid to look stupid. So we don't ask questions. If my accountant says, oh, I need $200 to do your taxes or something, I'm like, I always am like, it's awkward. It's uncomfortable to be like, I need to know why that's the price. And what do you charge other people? And like, you just want to be like, okay, it's fine. Okay, it's fine. But to call and say, why is my interest rate this? Or I have this certain credit card at your bank, but could I be better served by a different credit card? You might come off as annoying. You might come off as a nudnik and you might look stupid because they'll be like, that's dumb. You actually don't qualify for that credit card, you fucking moron. But like, you just have to, you just have to put yourself out there in all these ways that is so uncomfortable. And one thing that I've learned about people in poverty or people who are low income is that they have a higher threshold for embarrassment. They will wait in line. They will go and do the thing that's going to get them $2. They will cut the coupons. They have much higher ability to ask questions.
Well, it's a necessity. It's different. First of all, this whole conversation, I feel, is a weird, uncomfortable privilege to even have. But like, I look at my kids and it's really hard to... And by the way, my grandparents were on food stamps. So there is an element of we did break the pattern of being impoverished. And that's generationally, that's an amazing thing. But to try to teach that to my kids as they are looking around, you know, with their horses and their dogs, and it's really hard. And there's an element of wanting to instill the values of how money is not something that is easily come by and you want to teach them hard work and resilience, financial resilience, it just becomes hard to do. And I think one of the important things about stimulus rec is that it really shows how COVID or really any crisis can hit people who think they got it under control. I'm pretty good at working with finances. Did you find that a lot of people who were surprised by the financial impact the pandemic had on them personally? Yeah, definitely. I think people thought that their jobs were essential and then found that they weren't. So many people getting laid off due to the economic impact of COVID-19. So while it might not be unexpected, what can people do with, to do with the initial psychological and economic shock of losing their job? Rochelle, I think with any major career change, the impact of that change generally falls into two categories. There's the practical impact, and then there's also the emotional impact. And we had a complete reframing over what qualifies as essential and who has to work the hardest. And then what's been so interesting is now these people are asking for more. They're unionizing. They want better wages. They all of a sudden understood that their labor was actually super important and is actually keeping the country running. I hear a lot from people who are sort of in that middle ground where you have maybe parents or grandparents who had a lower income. You somehow break free of that by having some individual success. And then the next generation, it is hard to express that to them because you if you don't come from like a long line of generational wealth where it's like my family owned a plantation, which we can't even get into, then like you largely will oftentimes still feel economically anxious, even if the world around you doesn't reflect that. It's a scarcity mindset. It's the reason that so many of our grandparents will be like, they'll pass away and we'll find money hidden in their clothes, hidden in their shoes. And there's no reason, right? Like you've broken free. Obviously, if they needed anything, you would be able to help them, but they don't trust it. They don't believe it, especially um, I'm guessing you are Italian. <laughs> yes, they were immigrants. They came over with nothing. My grandmother was 11. She started to make hats. She was a milliner and she would sell them on the street in a shopping cart. And then by the time she was like 35, and this was this was unheard of at the time, she had her own factory and her own business. I mean, it was a big deal. And my mother's side, who struggled forever, and I think that was part of the reason and part of so much of youth entertainers is so much about the parents breaking the cycle. Because I could look at my mom and be like, this makes total sense that I started acting at seven. Because this was the only way out. This was the only way out. Yeah. It happens to a lot of, I think you hear from people who have come from things like 
Italian immigrants where Italian people were seen very differently back then. Irish immigrants coming from the famine. I'm Jewish. So everything that we do is colored by the Holocaust. And you see it even now today with the stereotype of like, you got to be the one to get out of your largely black community, largely Latino community. There's so much pressure put on marginalized people more so than anyone else. And even rural white people who are in economically disadvantaged areas, there's a lot of pressure. If you don't see it around you, then you're leaving those bubbles to go into a different sphere. So let's say you're the first person in your family to go to college. You're going to have different stressors and different fish out of water and different expectations on you than someone who's I'm going to the same school that my mom went to that my dad went to that or I'm going to go work in the factory in Flint, Michigan, because that's what 98% of people do in that city. And then what happens when that entire industry goes away? So the pandemic affected a lot of small businesses that were family owned businesses. And I can see this particularly in LA. And this is where we're talking about quote unquote, post pandemic. Everything changed in Los Angeles. The amount of unhoused people in the east side of Los Angeles has, I don't know, tripled, I'm going to say, just based on my own eyes. Businesses are all closed. Things that I used to go to that were like local, clearly family owned, clearly had been in in Echo Park or Los Feliz for decades. Closed, closed, all done. Everyone was pushed out further East and it just looks completely different than when I lived there in 2020. And it's atrocious. They don't do anything. There's just tents lining the streets in Echo Park and in Los Feliz and Silver Lake, which is the east side of Los Angeles. And I don't know, the government has just decided not to deal with it. And it's because they didn't really work that hard to pause evictions. It's just this thing that decimated people. They are trying to decriminalize being impoverished, which, you know, is very noble. But it means that states are not able to go in and move the unhoused into other areas. So or into housing. There's so much problems with housing rights and with don't even get me started. It is a catastrophe. We are failing people at the most basic level of governing. And it is devastating. Congresswoman Bass, I'm going to go to you next. You've talked about this issue some, too. As far as using police and law enforcement to break up some of these encampments, what are your thoughts on that? Well, let me just say, first of all, that I don't believe that you should ever criminalize poverty. I would never do that. The other thing is, is that people need housing. They need temporary housing immediately. I do think that there are just some things that you don't do on the street, and sleeping is one of them. However, I don't think that you just move people from one neighborhood to another. For anyone who has any sense of empathy or compassion, who was never told, which I think my generation was very much about, be grateful for what you have, help those that don't have it, be the voice of the voiceless. Nobody ever taught me to like, to sometimes protect myself from the struggle of humanity. And I think a lot of my generation's anxiety comes from that we are constantly looking at how we've failed people and this country. And then you have also people in my generation who, by the way, inherited the greatest economy ever, who blew it. And now we're blaming it on millennials. Ooh, they really, they don't work. I think there was a naivete probably by largely white people up until 2016, where it was like, but surely if we vote and the government will help us and surely like this is actually I mean, I I think Gen X got a pretty big brunt of it where they were like, 
but we believe in the real estate market and we believe in the government and we are voting. We are, you know, and then it just came back to be like, actually, this is not that individualistic. This is going to require a complete overhaul. Not to say you shouldn't recycle. This is actually going to require like huge political action and a complete overhaul of the ways that factories dump their waste and the climate change laws and all of these things. And so we go, hey, government, actually, this is what we want. And the government goes, actually, no. Actually, no, we can't do it. And this brings me to my next question, which is why is so much of the financial advice from media experts shame based? Because it's easy and it goes viral, I think, a lot of times. And some of these people have lost touch with the average person. I think that this idea, because America is so pull yourself up by your bootstraps, which again implies like individualistic ability to like surpass government. And it's also because people are scared. People are so scared. So if someone has a modicum of financial stability, they go, at least I'm not this person. And they want to believe that they won't be that person. And they want to believe in like exceptionalism. If I just work hard, I will surely get this thing. And anyone who is not getting this thing is just not working hard enough. If they start to unpack that this could happen to anyone, that becoming unhoused, that losing your health insurance, that any of this stuff could happen to anyone, that is is so scary that it like rattles them. The one thing that I talk about a lot when I talk about disability is that disability is a community that anyone can join at any time. It's not going to not affect you because you're rich. It's not going to not affect you because you already have too much going on and you have two kids and you can't lose a leg in an accident. Things are egalitarian. They're going to happen. But you can't live in that reality because it freaks you out. And so I think a lot of the stuff is like, well, if you just did this, if you just cut this, then you wouldn't have these problems. And I could never have to do all of those things. But that's because I'm somehow better than you. And then I will never be in your position. So I don't have to live in fear of being in that position. But the fear is still there. And I think also, and I talk about this a lot, is that with each generation, the ways in which we classify the stereotypes of that generation are largely through the white upper middle class people in that generation. The hippies, the reality bites type people, the millennials who are like girl bossing around with their avocado toast or whatever. The like stereotype that builds of each generation is built off of the visibility of the white upper middle class people from that generation. Meanwhile, you could say to me, oh, you're 34, you're a millennial, you just care about your phone or whatever. But if you met someone my age who was maybe like a black woman in Louisiana with three kids, you would never go, that's a millennial. You would say that's a poor person or that's a black person or a mother, you know, someone who has too many kids, whatever stereotype you have. You would not be like, that's a person who's getting avocado toast. But then the problem with only seeing this one group as representing an entire group is that then policy reflects government wise that one group. So I understand that student loans are a big problem. I get that. But who has student loans? And then the rest of my generation is just seen as poor, whereas like. In my mind, and I'm open to hearing dissent, but I think universal health care and medical debt are actually the top concerns of millennials and not necessarily student loans. But we get more pizzazz towards student loans because it affects largely middle class to upper middle class white people. A shocking new study came out earlier this week that shows that millennials are paying more than double what their parents paid for employer sponsored health care just 20 years ago. To be fair, I know that a lot of times black families take on more student loans because they 
are trying to have some sort of class and economic mobility that is really difficult. But I think instead of addressing poverty, we address the stereotypes of the generation. So honestly, like universal health care, a lot of times when I'm breaking down what needs to happen, it really just comes down to universal health care every single time. It's like the boogeyman. Every time you can't get away from it. And it makes complete sense when you dissect it. I want to talk about, I want to give my listeners some of the practical things people who find themselves doing less than great job managing their money, the people who are just, they're trying, but they're doing a less than great job managing their money. What can they do to get on track, even if they're in a bad place? Where do you even begin? Where do you get started? I cried for three days. So that's an essential part of the process. And then honestly, one thing that I did was I went through all of my bank statements. I just opened everything and I printed them. You don't have to. I went through them with a highlighter and I started highlighting what I saw repeated. And I started highlighting what I was like, that's weird. When I say in the book that I realized that I was paying for parking, a run into a store for five minutes, pay for four hours, just hit the button. You have to look at your habits and what they actually are and not in terms of cutting what you love, not in terms of going into like scarcity, Dave Ramsey, I don't have anything, but in the sense of, oh, that actually doesn't reflect my values. That's not what I want to be doing. Why do I have a bunch of memberships to stuff that I don't even feel compelled towards anymore? What are you prioritizing that is actually old news or is actually like not necessary? And so there's this really great woman, actually, her name's Tiffany Aliche. She goes by the Budget Nista, and she talks a lot about A, B, and C budgeting, which is essentials in A, and then she'll put stuff in B that she really wants and likes, and then she'll put stuff in C that she's like, yeah, maybe. And that's on your own priorities. That's not, if lattes are in A, go for it. And also there's something to be said about, I think a lot of the things that people deem inessential are actually things that women want. Don't get a manicure. And it's like, okay, so you're just supposed to show up to your office job looking like shit. Fine. So why do we have these standards? And then when she needs to cut something, she cuts from C and she already has it ready. Okay. What from C can I get rid of? I do a lot of assessing what's around me. So I think there's a really great book called Your Money or Your Life where you might think you don't have anything. But if you look around you, let's say you're like a middle class person, you look around you and you're like, I actually have like this desk that I don't use. Maybe the desk could go on Facebook Marketplace. This woman, Vicki Robin, she talks about seeing everything around you and putting a dollar amount on it. So, oh, that's interesting. Like I have this thing and I wonder how much that could go for. And this is also something that I used to do all the time, which is I would sell all my books which I don't recommend, but I would just take my whole bookcase, put it in a duffel bag and then go to the place that buys books and sell all my books and then have no books and start over. Or like your clothes, I would sell my clothes all the time. Like, cause I would see everything that I had as something that had a dollar sign to it. And that was always helpful to me in a dire situation. I think we don't talk about the hard stuff. That's sort of embarrassing to say. Yeah. Because everything's shame-based. Of course. And it's embarrassing or it's like, You know, Vicky also talks about seeing the hours in your life as dollar amount. She says, if you want to buy something, take how much that is, how many hours of your life that is, and then what each hour, what that would cost for each hour of your work. And then if you do that and you're like, actually, that's a lot of work for that. I don't want to buy that. It will help you. I have so many times just because of the ease of clicking. So many times I'll be like, what if I just waited 24 hours? And then 24 hours later, you actually didn't want to buy that. I put things in my cart now and just let it sit there. And sometimes I'll move it to 
buy at a later date because it does become the dopamine release of those clicks. Which life is so hard. Of course, life is so shitty. You get off work and a lot of people call it revenge spending, which is that. And this happened during the pandemic, too. Nobody could go on trips. You were having way less money. So once things started to subside, maybe, and you got a new job or something, and you're like, well, I missed out on all this stuff for two years. So now that I have this new job, I'm not going to save. I'm going to have all my revenge for all my fun, which is, again, like it's all mentally. It makes so much sense. You you hop online, you see another shooting, you go, I don't know how to deal with this. I'm going to hop on over to the shoe store and buy more sneakers. Our brains are so melted and twisted into being confronted with so much shit. That then the capitalist and the consumerist aspect is like, hey, have you seen a lot of shit today? Buy some candles. I'm here to talk to you, pick your brain, about emotional spending. Mm. I think that I do it sometimes. So how would we define emotional spending for anyone who's wondering what we're talking about? Basically, emotional spending is going to be any time you're spending money that is linked more to your emotional state Mm -hmm. uh, than actual needs or even, in many cases, real wants. It's going to be things like stress spending, you know, anxiety spending, um, you know, even for some people, like I'm a big one who spends when something really good happens. There is a biology to it. I want to talk a little bit about credit. People in these situations often end up with bad credit which just makes living more expensive in every way. And it hits on all of those shame points that we've been talking about. What can people with damaged credit do to mitigate the effects of a low credit score? It takes forever. It's vastly unfair. I would say checking it. And I don't think you should check it as much as some people say. I would say every three months, people say a lot more than that. But I say doing a soft check, so one that doesn't actually impact your score. Because hard inquiries, like when you rent an apartment or when you're getting a mortgage or things like that, that does affect your score. But if you just like soft check it, it won't. But the problem is that mistakes can pop up so easily. And then correcting the mistake is very old fashioned, where it's like requires being on the phone. And sometimes you have to send a physical letter and it's antiquated in the way that you can fix the mistakes. But if you see a mistake, it is worth taking the time to get it fixed because it does affect everything. One of the big things is you paying your credit card on time. I have a tough time paying it in full, but paying it on time on the date, like setting up an automatic payment where it is going through, they notice consistency. And if you can, even if it's like, it shouldn't be a high amount, but even if it is a high amount, if you just show that you have regularity and that you're consistent and that you're quote unquote trustworthy, which was that even mean, it will raise the score. There's all kinds of tricks. If you can't get a credit card because it's all decimated store cards, if you want to get like a JCPenney card or something and just be very careful and use that in only one place that can help show consistency without having you go balls to the wall. Like now I have $20,000 on an Amex. There's also cards. There's different cards for like students that are a little bit less intense. There's different cards that are for people that are just starting out. So you don't have to like hop on over to the biggest Capital One card. There are like smaller steps and the more smaller steps that you're taking, it adds to your credit score because you really just have to show consistency. And again, like that's hard to come by for a lot of people. And people have, I hear horror stories about my mom took out a card in my name and now I don't have Like it's all fucked or I did a care credit for dental work or something, which happened to me, and I just wasn't paying it and forgot about it. And that dinged everything. 
So it takes, it's so easy to lose points and then so hard to gain points. And then you add on to all of this, scammers. Why in the world are scammers still able to flood social media, cell phones, emails? What the fuck? Are tech companies doing nothing? Is the government doing nothing about these scammers? There is the Financial Protection Bureau, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which I think was started by Elizabeth Warren. That is a place that you can go to and report stuff and it can help the Better Business Bureau and stuff like that. But because of social media, it's become so much more individualized. I think one of the big things, and if you listen to Scam Goddess with Lacey Mosley, she talks about the despo meter, which is the level of desperate you are. So if you are someone who is in a financial strait that is dire, you are more susceptible to these sort of quick schemes. If you need money fast, they will come after you specifically. And they target that. They target the elderly because they go through Facebook. And if you are any age, but if your grandma is on Facebook, go to her Facebook, take off her phone number, take off who she's related to. Don't have the matches of who you're related to, because then these scams come where they call and they go, we have your grandson, Daniel. And you need to give us $500 or we're going to kidnap. I don't know, whatever. And because they have the name and the phone number, the grandparent might be like, oh, this is real. There's also all of these scams that people have told me where this is the most egregious to me is that they'll get hired for a job. They're like, oh, my God, thank God I have a job. The boss goes, "Okay, so I need you to buy like $400 in Amazon gift cards and then I'll reimburse you. And then you just give me the gift card. And then the person's, yeah, I'm an assistant. That's part of my job. Then the person just takes off with the gift card. There's all of these sort of, there's hiring scams. Just make sure even on your own Facebook, your number's not on there, which it can be even if you haven't noticed or don't have the connections to, don't be like, this is my mom, this is my grandma. Like the less information, the better in that regard, especially because they go through Facebook pretty intensely. And a lot of these, a lot of these scams, they say, do it fast. We need it in five hours. An older victim has less time to recover, so it really has a huge impact on them. Um, you know, they're, they're older, they're maybe living on a fixed income, so the percentage of what they lose may be more, um, more impactful. We know that more than half of, of scam victims, when we polled caregivers, lost more than $1,000. My mother-in-law was targeted, and she felt so horrible that she felt for it. That became a whole other issue. I want to talk to you about the economy because it's wild right now. Inflation is bad around the world, but the job market is pretty great. The stock market is absolutely ridiculous. There may be another boom or another recession, depending on who you ask. So how can people prepare for the fluctuations? With the stock market, I don't do, I don't really recommend like day trading type stuff, but a lot of what I do is I, if I do invest in stock market stuff, I will put it into things that I know long-term will probably be around. And I'm not looking at it every month to be, or every day to be like, what is it? I'm like, this will be something that I care about in 50 years. Like I'm not going to do it now. But also one thing that I would recommend is that I think there's so much noise about what to invest in, what the best thing is to do, crypto, NFTs, blah, blah, blah. And this maybe makes me boring, but I don't invest in something I don't know the company, what it does. So I'll invest in a company that makes shoes or like, a, you know, something like that. But if it's, oh, you got to get in on the ground floor of this thing. And I'm like reading about it. And I'm like, I don't know what this company does. Like after an hour, I still could not tell you what they make. 
that to me, although it's hot, although it's spicy, everyone's, oh, you got to get in on this. I'm like, ah, if I couldn't succinctly explain what this company's purpose is, I can't invest in it. And that's just a personal preference. And I've heard other people say that too, but some people will say, oh, but that's not how you get rich. And I'm like, I don't need to be rich. I just need to be like not losing money. How about all these celebrities that are like encouraging cryptocurrencies? And it's so irresponsible to me because it's so irresponsible to use whatever trust you've created with your audience and your people and your platform to also it's just completely out of touch. And I think that goes back to what you said before about just being out of touch and looking at a certain demographic to reflect policy and the success of that generation. It's a hype machine that feeds on itself. And I think one of the most insidious parts of it is that it's marketed as this is going to even the playing field. This is going to help marginalize people with generational wealth. And the problem is that you can't use Bitcoin or any of these coins to buy groceries. They market it that you can. They say there's, again, a a really good video called Line Goes Up, which is by Dan Olson. And he was a guest on Bad With Money. And basically, they market it as come into Taco Bell and use Bitcoin to pay. But it's just a sticker. You can't really actually, like most places, you can't really actually do that. So the average person that is having crypto, it's not equalizing. It's actually not as accessible as they're like, if this will be the new accessible thing. And it's like, you can't use it at the grocery store. You can't use it at McDonald's. It's just not, it's just a sticker that they were like going around being like, hey, can we put this sticker on your window for your bodega? And then I was asking Dan, I was like, if someone comes in and says, I want to pay with Bitcoin, what do they do? And he was like, what do they do? What do they do when you go in and you're like, I need to use my credit card? And they go, the credit card machine is down. You just go, oh, okay. And you go somewhere else or you use cash. And I was like, oh, my God, it's a scam. The FBI warning about fraudulent schemes targeting cryptocurrency ATMs with criminals directing victims to use the ATMs and send funds that are then used for illegal activity. The ATMs are found around the country and accept cash in exchange for Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies. I mean, it really is unbelievable. It's it's all it's all this sort of wanting to feel control. You're everyone is scared, wanting to feel like I have something that other people don't know about. And especially with inflation. How much does hope play into it? A lot. And inflation and also, again, like fear, too, where like and we were just through like an apocalyptic event. So how many people during that time absconded to the woods? Or we're like, I actually need to buy like 400 cans of goods because who knows what's going to happen. Wi-Fi goes down in Los Angeles. Everyone freaks out. Everything is so precarious that like I feel like the doomsday preppers are like, we told you so. (laughs) For sure. And there's always there's always going to be a group of people that have that right that are like, you know, when I sat in the Kavanaugh hearing and was fighting for abortion rights and saw the writing on the wall, along with so many grassroots organizations who said, this is going to lead to this. And now everybody's like shocked. We told you 
four years ago that this was going to happen to Roe v. Wade. I think there's always going to be, and maybe it's the people who are more hands-on and on the ground and living these lives, but I do always think that there is a group of people that are like, you know what? I saw this coming. Do you think that that we have to fight dirty? Do you think I think sometimes the leftists or progressives don't fight as dirty as the Republicans and that's why we lose? You know, I think that I was thinking about this the other day because I was on a, an organizing grassroots phone call. And I think part of the progressive power is that we do see the intersectionality in all of it. And that's we should. But I think it muddies the water a little bit. And I think if we were to take these issues as their own issue and specifically fight for that issue instead of tying everything to climate. And I think what the Republicans do really well is not even talk about issues. They boil it down to things that people don't understand what it is. Gun violence prevention is you want to take away my guns or that's a Second Amendment or whatever that is. And people go, yeah, that's what that is. But it's not even messaging. It's like, it's, I don't know, it's fear and shame. They have such a good grasp on like, oh no, the children, we got to keep them from being aborted, which, okay. And when they're out, let's get them shot, but also make sure they don't see drag queens. Like they use fear tactics because they feel out of control. And so can they control a person coming in with a gun, they can't really. And they do the same thing that people do with money where they go, well, at least it's not me. I would have done this differently. Oh, I would have charged in with my gun and changed this, but you weren't there. But they're like, I would have done this differently. They don't want to believe that they're as vulnerable. And so they can't do anything about that, but they can make sure kids don't go to drag shows. And so they're like, this is grooming. This is grooming, right? And that's something that they can actively make moves towards. And that allows people to not feel as out of control. They go, well, at least I can control this one thing. At least I can stop this woman from going into a, an abortion clinic. At least I can stop this kid from seeing the word gay somewhere because they just feel out of control. It all comes down to white supremacy and the patriarchy. What gives you hope is my final question. What gives you hope? The labor organizing that I've seen, the ways in which local politics, the ways in which people have really rallied around local politics and the ways in which people have been willing to put themselves on the line for labor unions at Amazon, at Starbucks, the ways in which like I think people pre COVID, there was like a subset of people who would have been like, we don't need unions. We don't need we don't need any of this. This is whatever. And then after they saw People started going, wait a minute, I'm not getting paid enough. Like people started, I think a lot of people were radicalized in that way. And it's still, there's still such a strong capitalist mindset. But I do like seeing how much these individual groups have popped up and people are more open to the idea of unions, which I'm really happy to see because I do see a marked difference from before COVID to now. Well, Gabby Dunn, you give me hope. Oh, come on. Thank you for all you do and for being a part of the podcast. Thank you for having me. What a joy. We first met Olivia Raymond in early 2020 in her personal finance class in middle school. Now, a year later, 14-year-old Olivia is still using those important money lessons. Those are skills that can be applied when I go for a job, when I apply to colleges. A ninth grader attending high school remotely in New Jersey, she's looking forward to continuing to gain access to valuable financial education. The financial literacy of Americans is terrible, and it starts in education. Every single high school student 
should be required to take and pass coursework on basic manager life finances. People should know how to balance a checkbook, how to save, how to budget, what credit means, and how to use it responsibly. It has such a huge impact on our lives, and yet most people are never given good tools and information to help them succeed. But financial management is not only a personal problem. Let's not forget that there is way more money in the country than there is in circulation, and it's hoarded by the wealthiest people here. Fewer than 800 families hold two-thirds of our national wealth. Imagine that. Imagine everyone else being able to triple their holdings if that hoarding didn't happen. That's what we're talking about here. So while we do have an individual responsibility to manage our own money, we also have a societal responsibility to make sure the wealth is distributed. It is immoral and un-American to be a billionaire, and our government needs to fix it before the next COVID hits. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our producer is Ben Jackson. Audio editing and engineering by Mache Lewandowski. And music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. Don't forget to rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry. Sorry.